it's just staggering. It's incredible. I mean, Loon is a totally different ski area than it was 10 years ago. Sunday River, it just seems limitless. The unwanted stepchild in this whole equation has been Sugarloaf. Even the born employees will say, ah, Sunday River gets everything. Loon gets everything. <laughs> and it was true. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Got something a little different for you today. We are going to look broadly at the world of New England skiing with a journalist who has been covering it closely for decades, rather than our typical line of hyper-focusing on one ski area. If you love all things lift surf skiing, then you will not only like this particular episode, but you will also love the Storm Skiing Newsletter, where I am breaking down the world of lift surf skiing with a minimum of 100 articles every single year. So please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. You can also follow the storm on Twitter slash X, Instagram, and threads at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to my conversation with the great Sean Sutner, a quick word from my sponsor, Aspenware. Imagine a future where 99% of your mountain products are booked online. Aspenware is the leading e-commerce solution purpose-built for the ski industry. They create customized e-commerce platforms that ensure resort guests spend more time doing what they love and less time standing in lines. Utilizing the team's extensive industry experience, Aspenware strives to make the resort booking process seamless with a mobile-friendly, simplified sales process that anticipates the needs of the guests at every part of their journey. Based in Denver, Colorado, Aspenware stands apart as an innovator they understand the value that software and technology bring to a mountain resort, and they strive to create solutions so good they seem invisible. Visit Aspenware.com to learn more. Episode 155, Sean Sutner, snow sports columnist for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette and Telegram.com. Part of the reason that I started the storm is that there isn't, frankly, a ton of great journalism happening in the ski world today. That wasn't always the case, and I came up in an era of excellent ski journalism, focused mostly in the national ski magazines. That's faded in the shift to the digital era, which ski journalism did not, in my opinion, manage well. I've laid this out plenty of times, but the core problem is really an overfocus on hero skiers doing hero skier things, which most skiers can't do and, to be honest with you, don't really care about. It's cool and fun to watch, but it's not super relatable. What almost no one is really writing about anymore is the common skier's experience, about the ski areas that shape our ski days and seasons, and about the culture that surrounds them. Luckily, a few traditional journalists have hung on. My guest today is one of them, and he's one of the best. Let's go. My guest today has been the snow sports columnist for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette and Telegram.com for nearly two decades. He is also the news director for information management in the independent editorial unit at Tech Target, a tech media company. He is an avid recreational skier and alpine touring enthusiast who races in the Wachusett Night Race League and is a former high school ski race coach. He is also a very good friend of the Storm who is making his third appearance on the Storm Skiing Podcast. Sean Sutner is my guest. Sean, welcome back to the storm once again. So awesome to have you as always. How have you been, my man? How's things going? 
Well, I'm, I'm on an endorphin high right now because I skied yesterday okay. um, at uh, Killington and Okimo. And let's not forget that uh, your worst day on slopes is better than your best day at the office. Mm-hmm. So the conditions were kind of uh, irrelevant. <laughs> we can talk mm-hmm. about that right. But I'm in a great mood. I've been doing this a lot more myself lately, which is skiing two ski areas in a single day. And this is something that you wouldn't have done 10 years ago because you would have had to buy two separate lift tickets. Well, you're in a, a little bit different situation because you're a journalist and you can work with the media teams. But how much different have these multi-mountain passes just made the experience of being in, in New England, which is so dense with ski areas, and just being able to hop out and sort of curate a different sort of ski day than you could have had a generation ago? Well, yeah, it's like having a smorgasbord of tasty options at your disposal, you know? Mm-hmm. It's it's amazing. I mean, the first time I ever did it was when Peak got Attach and Wildcat together. And so I did it one morning and me and my buddy were told that we were the first ones to do it. It was like the first week. Okay. And it was a thrill. It was a real thrill. Okay. And then a few years ago, I did, I did three. I mean, I know you often do two, three, maybe even four these days, but I did Catamount, Berkshire East and Basquet. And I was super happy about that. And Killington and Okimo, I've done that one before, the two for, it's, it's so much fun. It also underscores, I think, how different they all are, which is funny and interesting because they're not far apart and you would think they draw from the same populations. But I, I think at this point in New England ski history, these places really do have, it's funny, I was talking to Ben Wilcox at Cranmore a few weeks ago and he's like, he's an old school guy and he worked for Bretton Woods for a long time. And he said he was telling war stories about how he used to go count cars in his competitors' parking lots. And he's like, I don't do that anymore because skiers who go to Adatash and skiers who go to Cranmore made those decisions a long time ago. And we're not really competing for those people anymore. Talk a little bit about that identity piece of it and how much each New England skier is really zeroed in on its brand at this point in history. Yeah, I heard your podcast with Ben Wilcox and I totally agreed with him when he said that because I, I've been thinking that for a number of years that, you know, of course there's some competition, whether it's, you know, early opening, late opening, different amenities, different lifts, whatever. But I really do think it's more about growing the whole ski industry itself and that the ski areas themselves, no matter how close they are, are more collegial than they are really super competitive. I mean, you can see it in Southern Vermont when everybody rallied to help Magic, obviously. And, you know, Stratton has its own distinct crowd. Mount Snow has its own distinct crowd. Magic clearly has its own distinct crowd. Bromley's carved out a special niche. And then Okimo Kellington, to me, and I wrote about this last year when I skied them both, they're like polar opposites. Yeah. They complement each other. They're like a yin and yang, completely different in almost every way. Yeah, so, so I'm fired up that you got to experience both in the same day. I thought I was going to have the first day of my ski season on Friday as Bel Air, a little spot here in the Catskills, was opening to the public for one day after a season pass holder day on Thursday. I drove all the way up there and I was foiled in the parking lot. There was an electrical issue. So I did not get to start my ski season before Thanksgiving as I was hoping to. So how was it for you? What are Killington and Akimo looking like right now? And and for the listeners, we are recording this on November 20th. So Sean is going to be referring to November 19th ski conditions. Okay. At the risk of pissing off anybody, Killington and and, and Akimo, the conditions were probably the worst pre-Thanksgiving conditions I've seen in five or eight years. However, I do not hold that against them in any way. It was a couple of warm-ups. They couldn't groom. I don't know exactly why, but I think it's because it was just too thin to groom. 
And so they were big, big, icy, slushy moguls the top, little width, but tremendous stoke as usual among the skiers and riders, right? Everybody was just super happy and just trying to prevent themselves from crashing into somebody. That was the main thing. Um, <laughs> it's so tight, you know, and then some yeah. snow making going on. But I will say this though, Superstar looked like midwinter, obviously. Really? Everybody's seen the pictures of that. But Okimo's open top to bottom, not so for Killington. So I give kudos to Okimo for that. Yeah, so Superstar was not open for skiing yet, to be clear. Nope. They were just yeah. prepping that. Killington was, they were just prepping that. But of course, Superstar really isn't top to bottom either, if you really think about it. So I, I just am impressed that Okimo somehow has managed to get a ribbon of snow from the top to the bottom. I like that you describe the Stoke of New England, Sean, and obviously you have a good perspective on this. You travel around a lot. I know you try to get out west every year. What is your 20, well, first of all, where did you go last year? for your Western trip. And what do you have on the docket for this year? Just went to Vail last year. Oh, no, I went to Vail and I went to Utah in April. Um, so that, I went during the infamous week when Little Cottonwood Canyon was closed for the entire five days I was there. I was staying at the mouth of Little Cottonwood Canyon, just near Sandy. A friend of mine is a doctor in Salt Lake and uh, completely closed, could not get into Little Cottonwood Canyon. I did do some backcountry in Lambs Canyon, which is a private canyon. Then I skied a couple of days of Snow Basin, a couple of days of Park City. It was a huge warm-up, tremendous spring skiing in the morning and then slushy in the afternoon. Vail, I skied last January, had tremendous cold, powdery conditions. So I try to get out twice a year and try to do a Quebec trip. So this year I'm trying to do a Vail trip in January, a Quebec trip in February, and then late spring, either Chick Chocks or Iceland for a touring trip. So what's your day's goal for this coming season? Uh, well, I've kind of downsized. I did hit 60 last year, even with a, even with a month off due to uh, health problems. I'm, I'm downsizing my goal from 80 to 60 and hope I go higher. But the secret to all this, as you well know, is getting an early start. Yeah. Because then it's harder to play catch up. It's not only getting an early start on the season, which I tried to do and was foiled. I think it's it's also about consistency and it's also about setting up your ski days so they happen in an automatic way. Like for me, for example, if I see there's a snowstorm in Vermont, that's a minimum of four hours of drive for me. So I have to plan everything the day ahead. I have to get my lunch packed. I have to get my clothes set out. I have to set the alarm. I have to deal with the animals in the morning and I have to make it so that I'm at those lifts at around nine o'clock. And if I don't very deliberately think about and plan that, it's just not going to happen. How do you approach that whole aspect of it, Sean, as far as you know, if you want to go skin somewhere like Berkshire East, that there's a certain routine that goes along with that. And there's a certain time you have to set your alarm and you have to work that in around everything else. How do you do that and plan out your ski days so that you get that many in a season? Thinking ahead. So yeah, you have a powder day that you have to kind of freelance. Just thinking ahead, where am I skiing next weekend? Where am I skiing the weekend after that? Where am I taking a long weekend? What morning can I get out to watch you sit? I'm racing again now at night. I came back last year after a 10-year absence. So that's every Monday night. Then I'm going to do one morning at watch you sit and then another skinning morning. So try to get three during the week which is one of the great advantages of living here in Worcester with a thousand foot vertical ski area right here. So then they're just scheming, you know, scheming like, uh, I hate to say this, but couch surfer, which friend has a couch available at Sunday River this weekend? Right. So so how did you decide, for example, to go to Vail last year, right? Because you could go almost anywhere and Vail is not a place that tends to have a lot of affordable lodging around it. So oh. uh, how do you make those decisions about where to go out west? Oh, well, I have the most affordable lodging 
uh, in the ski industry, being that my younger brother, Josh, has lived in Vail for 40 years. Full time. <laughs> That's beautiful. So he has a number of bedrooms and couches. <laughs> so I've been going there since the 80s pretty regularly. And I, I and the great thing about there is I have a pack of ready-made ski companions, um, all my brother's friends, and they're all like insanely great big mountain skiers. And they're nice enough to ski with me and lead me around and they'll wait for me at the bottom. I try to keep them in my sight. That's, that's my goal. They're that fast. But so I have that option, right? And then I have my my dead brother, Adam, who was in the ski industry, always lived in different places. So stay with him. Then I have a good friend in Salt Lake as well, open door policy. But I'll stay, you know, hotels, Airbnbs, wherever I have to. I mean, that whole universe has expanded. People don't give Airbnb enough credit. You can look at Airbnb two ways. Like it's soaking up all these apartments and houses that could go for affordable housing. Or But it also, and along with the mega passes, allows people to perhaps stay more conveniently and more cheaply, you know, at these uh, destinations. Yeah, it definitely gives more varied housing options than the hotel room with two beds option that we were stuck with for years and years. How much do your boys out in Vail hassle you about the safety bar? I know you and I talk about this a lot. I know we both like to use it. I know the skiers out West are too cool for it, but I get freaked out without it. So, so what's that dynamic like when you're skiing with them? Okay, I would say they're not as rabid and hardcore as Utah skiers mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. Utah people hate it. Colorado are more like well, a little passive aggressive. They'll say it's okay with a smile and they'll put the bar down, but they're not happy. That's basically the attitude. What do you think is behind that? I, I think it's, frankly, I think it's stupid. It's like, why is this such an affront to your manhood? It, it really annoys me because it, it it's something that, is a very particular cultural artifact of the American West. Like you don't, if you're in the East, it's coming down whether you're ready or not. If you're in Europe, same thing. In the West, they, they have this machismo around it. What, what do you think is behind that? Well, I think it's the same machismo, the same cultural dynamic that's at work with the entire Western cultural history of this country and the westward expansion with these limitless spaces and the, the idea of freedom. You know, the idea of personal freedom and liberty. It's like a massive F off to authority symbolized by that bar. And it, it is incredibly stupid. <laughs> it, it, and, and some of my best friends out there still don't like to do it, lower the bar. And it's just like, I mean, there's some discussion, like, is it really safer with the bar? Um, yes, it is. And that's why, that, that's why uh, international safety uh, standards, I don't, not ISO, what is, it's, it's one of the other international engineering standards do say clearly that it's, Preferred. Yeah, the ANSI standards. ANSI standard, yeah. Yeah, Vail Resorts requires employees to use them. We're, we're seeing chairlifts come online that automatically bring them down. There's one in Deer Valley, new one going in at the Highlands in Michigan this, this year. But those are expensive. And obviously, there's still tons of chairlifts in the Midwest and the West without bars. I, I've made the comparison a few times recently, Sean, to helmets and how 20 years ago, no one really wore helmets. And now almost everyone does. And there's just been a, a cultural change around it. I think, I feel like Vail is starting to nudge that along a little bit. And I feel like this is a resistance that will evaporate at some point. And I'm not saying we should be like Vermont, which mandates you use them. I, I don't think that's going to fly in Wyoming. But I wonder what we have to do to soften some of this passive aggressiveness as you described it. Because it, it, it frankly is something that alienates the more casual skier, the more vacation skier. And maybe that's the point. And maybe it's it's like a way you showcase your localness or whatever. 
But ultimately, if the sport's going to grow it, it has to move past some of these cultural ticks that make people feel like they don't belong when they're out there, from my point of view. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll go away too. Like, sort of like the, the historic conflict between snowboarders and skiers has kind of faded a lot. That old animus is pretty much gone, I would say. And this will fade away too, you know, once as the lifts get upgraded and all the new lifts have bars. I, I just feel it'll, and, and, and helmets, you know, helmets have now uh, taken root. Uh, I don't agree with mandating helmets. Uh, I think some ski schools do that, but I, I don't agree with that. But it could go that way. Most states mandate them for motorcycles, right? So um, yeah, they actually don't. Uh, so so I, I actually well, used to ride motorcycles a lot and more than half the states don't require motorcycle helmets. And, and I would often ride a motorcycle without a helmet and I just enjoyed it more. But I've started to wear a helmet while skiing. I, I don't think they should be mandated either. I don't think the safety bar should be mandated that people use them. Uh, however, wh- what I would what I would appreciate is a more welcoming posture from skiers who may not use them themselves when they're riding with their boys, but maybe having a little bit more empathy for folks who do feel more comfortable with them. Like when you're on the Collins chairlift at Alta, I mean, that thing is high. It's a couple hundred feet off the ground. And frankly, I, I just don't, I've had some incidents in my life where I just pass out. And if that happens on a chairlift like that, I'm going to die. <laughs> so I want the bar down. Um, and I'd rather do it without it having to be a whole macho showdown. Yeah, that, that lift you just mentioned scares the hell out of me. <laughs> yeah. And I, I can't remember, remember whether the Jupiter chair at Park City has a bar, does it? Does it, it does now. Yeah, they'll yeah. put one on. Um, yeah, and, and then there's instances where the bars make you feel – there are instances when the bars make you feel like queasy themselves. Like the We'll talk about this later, but the, the old Attached Triple, which is gone now forever, I mean, that bar squeezed you in. And you could barely fit three grown adults on that lift. And the bar made it even worse. But without the bar, it would have been terrifying. Yeah, the old Jan chairs at Sunday River have the worst bars. And they're, they're, they conk people on the head, and they're too low, and they're too tight. So, look, I, I get that it's a nuisance for some people. Uh, but, but in reality, it, it's an outdated mindset. So let's, let's move on here. Let's talk about the biggest issue from my point of view in New England skiing this offseason, which has been the closure and sudden reopening all within a week of Black Mountain in New Hampshire. How did you react as you watched all this unfold where Black's saying, okay, after 86 years, 85 years, whatever, we're done. And then Indy Pass comes in and says, hey, we're going to help you with a bridge season. What are your thoughts? Well, it was, an extraordinary, it was, just, it was just an extraordinary series of events and you were right on, on top of it. But my first thing that just hit me right away, and I, I think I put on X, formerly Twitter, like, this is unbelievable. I was just sh- shocked about it. But then I thought for a minute about it, and I have a pretty counterintuitive view of this, and not totally counterintuitive, because I know some people even in the industry feel this way, but I'm putting the blame mostly on ownership there, not weather, not lack of labor, not the economy. I'm putting it squarely on ownership. That former, now former ownership group didn't invest a penny in that mountain in seven decades. So how are you going to remain viable when you don't have snowmaking, primitive snowmaking? How are you going to remain viable when you have unreliable lifts? It's impossible. I mean, so if you're going to have an all-time ski area, which I love, like Magic, like Smuggler's Notch, you still have to invest in an all-time traditional ski area to keep the experience authentic. Black didn't do that. The owner is 
mercurial at best, volatile. Everybody knew it. He's key there. So you can't just survive on goodwill alone and because you have great funky terrain. So I, I think responsible ownership, that wouldn't have happened because they had a good market. They had their dedicated group of skiers. So I'm super psyched that Indy is trying to help the bridge this year. So what does a sustainable Black Mountain look like? I think you need a basic snowmaking pumping system. You need basic guns on the main runs. Uh, you need bathrooms that work. You need some guarantee that you're going to be open on a sustainable basis a certain amount of days per week. You need more marketing. They went through a phase in the mid-2000s where they had great marketing because they had these Friday night lights, the uphill races. They also had like a, a chairlift dating night. Which okay. is really, they had all the, they had a marketing person there for a while who was doing a good job. But again, I mean, you have to have a skiable snow surface to have a good old time skier. So Magic takes care of that. Smugs takes care of that. Even Mad River Glen takes care of that. But Black didn't. There's a lot of different models out there that Black could follow. You mentioned Magic. That's a ski area that was abandoned for a while. It was out of business for five years. It's now doing quite well under a new ownership group. You have Black Mountain of Maine, which was almost a lost ski area and was rescued by Andy Shepard, who is helping to facilitate the sale of Black Mountain. You have the Mad River Glen model, which is a co-op model. Where do you think Black goes? Where do you think it should go? What the narrative is, is that it's not working as a traditional commercial ski area and that it needs a different model. So I guess, do you think that's true? And what do you think is the best example out there in New England of a revitalized ski area that, that Black Mountain ought to look to as an example? I haven't skied at Black Mountain, Maine, but I've read a lot about them. There's a tremendous vibe about it, but I know Magic quite well. I've been skiing there for many years. I know Jeff pretty well, Jeff Hathaway, the uh, wonderfully crazy uh, president there. They're a model because they decided, well, we're not going to take on mountains of debt. We're going to grow it organically, and we're going to grow it rationally, and we're going to keep at it. And so I drove by there yesterday, actually, after I skied Cunton and Okima. I saw the black line lift up, and it just, knowing that it's almost certainly going to be running this year, it made me so happy to see that. You know, a co-op, I don't think it's going to be a co-op at Black Mountain. I mean, Black Mountain has its crowd. It never gets crowded there, but it has its group of regulars, people who love Black Mountain. I mean, if you've skied the upper trails at Black, they're insane. Great terrain, you know. And it's a great Skinner's Mountain because it is an easy up and a challenging down. And that's why it became really the pioneer of New Hampshire uphill. And it's in a beautiful setting and it's out of the North Conway, you know, ecosphere a little bit. But there's a need for it. And that's why I think Indy stepped in and there, there's a market for it. I mean, totally different than any other ski area in the Mount Washington Valley. So I, I have high, high hopes for it. I mean, it's I wish they would do a little bit of lift upgrade at some point. I do appreciate that they have the J-Bar. They brought that back. That was one move they made. I don't know if the readers are familiar with the J-Bar, which is half a T-Bar. But they got to do something more than being uh, a ski area attached to a bar. How important is it? You mentioned the upper mountain terrain. That terrain is almost never open because you have that do that double chair that goes to the summit, but it has a mid-station, which is not quite in the middle. Let's call it a two-third station. And almost always, 80% of the time probably, the chair unloads there and you're not allowed to go to the top. How much should the next owner focus on making that a true top-to-bottom ski area 100% of the time that it's open? Uh, they should focus on that 100%. Magic did it. Magic put snow guns on all its steepest terrain from the summit. 
people don't realize that. I mean, you couldn't ski uh, Sorcerer or Wizard 10, 15 years ago, half the year. It's really critically important to get this snowmaking all the way to the top. Uh, even Canon this year is focusing on more of that. It's super, super important. I mean, Stowe learned it many years ago and others with really tough terrain from the top. So I think Black's got to do it and they will do it. So IndyPass founder Eric Mogensen, who was really instrumental in all this, he's said on the record a number of times, he has some good quotes in Sam recently, that up to 25% of America's ski areas in his opinion, need to be converted into some sort of nonprofit model. And he stresses that this could be a what he calls a uh, for-profit front end and a nonprofit back end, like Bridger Bowl in Montana or Bogus Basin in Idaho, which in other words is they have a lot of money, they make money, but they are not in its pay shareholders. All the money gets reinvested back into the ski area. You know, Andy Shepard has made a career out of saving ski areas in New England through some version of this, and he helped bring back Saddleback, most notably, but also Black Mountain of Maine and Quaggy Joe and, and a smaller place called Big Rock. What do you think about that, Sean, and the promise for a nonprofit model to work alongside our increasingly agglomerated New England ski ecosystem? I mean, it sounds great. It works in other spheres of the economy. Uh, Bad Rivers made it work uh, over the years. Uh, Saddleback, though, is... It is for profit, right? Yes, it is. Are they a B corporation as well? They're owned by Arcteris Impact Fund. Their whole business model is they go in and they buy projects in sort of high needs areas. And this can be urban inner cities or it can be rural, right? In places like Saddleback, basically places that are at some extreme that need a little boost up. And, and what they do is they fix things up and then sell them. So I, I don't believe that they are the long-term owners of Saddleback. And I believe that what they want to do is grease it up and sell it to an Altera or someone like that. I don't know that for sure, but I do know that they've said they're not long-term owners. So who knows who will end up with it in the long-term. Okay. So Basquet got bought by that community uh, business organization in Pittsburgh, yeah. right? Yep. So I, I do like that model where if not a B corporation, which is a corporation focused on doing good, to me, B corporation, it didn't, uh, Crested Butte just convert to B corporation, I believe, or? Well, Crested Butte's owned by Vale. All right. So one of the mountains out West, uh, is now, oh, uh, Taos. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. So, so that to me is the best model you have, or a community focused, uh, approach where you're working on building the economic infrastructure of the region. So I don't know how a, a nonprofit would, I mean, we tried this in the, in the news industry, nonprofits, and only a few work, uh, you know, Colorado Sun is one huge example. And there's a new one here in Worcester called the Worcester Guardian, which is an online nonprofit. But I don't know. I mean, uh, America was founded on profit, you know, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sure we'll revisit Black next year. For now, let's talk about my favorite ski area. Ski Ward, you know, I'm always stoked oh, about yeah. this place. <laughs> so Ski Ward became the first ski area in North America to open for the 2023 to 24 ski season on October 22nd. They did this with a $600,000 Latitude 90 snowmaking machine. From your point of view, Sean, was this a gimmick? Is this going to reset what a ski area can be in Southern New England? How significant is what Ski Ward just done? Well, John LaCroix and Mikey LaCroix and their sister, 
Mikey's sister runs a ski ward now. Um, they're going to hate me for this. I'm, and I, unlike you, I'm a huge booster of ski ward. I skied there regularly for a number of years when I was coaching high school ski racing. I thought it was a glorious gimmick. Phenomenal marketing ploy that echoed throughout the ski industry throughout the country. But that latitude is not a snowmaking machine. That's an ice making machine. All right. And the, they were skiing on ice shavings. So to me, technically in the traditional ski industry wars of who opens first, you have to have a somewhat sustained opening. You can't just open and close on one day and say you're really the first to open, which is not to say Killington hasn't had a close after a super early or, um, opening for a rain event or whatever. But I mean, it was fantastic. I know they had a rail jam there just a few days ago. I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but a Japanese group took over Tenny about a decade ago and had an ice machine and they called it the Tenny Glacier. And so the latitude, it's not really a snowmaking machine. It's kind of an ice shavings machine. And that's not sustainable. I don't think you can cover New England slopes with those machines uh, and make it economically feasible. I mean, I'd rather go toward the model in Scotland where you have carpets all year. But that said, it was great to see Ski Ward on the map and get a little publicity. And John LaCroix, the, the owner of Ski Ward, is a genius snowmaker and a genius ski groomer. That's his strength. He has tremendous inventiveness in that area. So it was just great to see them, even that they have the capital to buy something like that, because they do have a steady business there, even if they have unfriendly uh, lift attendants. <laughs> well, they need to work on that customer service element of it. But I was impressed by what they did here. And I was impressed with Michael LaCroix when I had a conversation with him. And let me reset what he said to me. And I want you to react to this. So his argument was essentially that what this allowed them to do was expand their little kid group lessons by a significant amount. And they had way more demand than supply before. But what they were able to do with this machine is they were able to open for lessons on November 1st, which is more than a full month before their traditional opening. The last few years I checked, they've been opening more around uh, first week in December, sometimes a little bit later. So it, it did that. And then the other thing that it did is that when they do get snowmaking temps that would accommodate traditional snowmaking, they can then focus that effort in those water resources on the steeper slopes and the higher slopes. So effectively what this would do if done appropriately, would take Ski Ward from a ski area that has a 10 to 12 week season to a ski area that has a 16 to 18 week season, which is significant for a high volume ski area that really makes its living on getting as many kids on and off the hill as possible. From that point of view, my takeaway was that this truly could be transformative, not only for Ski Ward, but for small New England ski areas in Connecticut and all around Boston that are facing short seasons and do have a very specific demographic that they could now grow. So that was my takeaway. It sounds like you're not buying it or seeing it the same way. I'm uh, skeptical. I'm waiting to be convinced because I feel like the economics of it, these machines are really expensive. And obviously, as we go forward, the more Southern ski areas are gonna have to have higher and higher efficiency snowmaking, being able to make snow in warmer temperatures. So yes, so I see the latitude is kind of a part of that evolution, but I don't see a dramatic immediate effect in the lengthening. I mean, Ward has not been able to stay open sustainably now, you know, so it'd be great if they did. So. I don't know. I, I think the jury's still out on that. You, you did characterize Ward right. I mean, it's just a 
a factory for, for training little kids how to ski. And, and most of their instructors are high school kids. And uh, my son started skiing there and it was free when he was skiing there, you know, five and under. But Ward has invested in lots of little ways besides this machine. I mean, they've had summer ramps. They put a bar, they put a little addition to their base lodge, a new grooming machine. So they do make investments in a way that some other smaller areas around here have not. The ski areas I worry about in New England long-term are Ski Ward and Blue Hills and Neshoba Valley and Mohawk and Sundown and all these little places in Southern New England that are, are really held hostage to a degree that the ski areas aren't up North by unfavorable weather patterns. And I just wonder if this is a way out or a way to extend the season. The thing is, Ward, over the years, though, I mean, I'm following Ward. They get a consistent number of days open per season, and they're able to do what the Midwest does, what St. Louis does, quickly resurface the place. So they have to work on that model. Like, they can resurface the whole mountain in two days. So they're adept at that. And Worcester's a little different than maybe some of those other places because we catch the ocean storms coming off the coast, and we're in the uplands here. We start the gradual ascent into the higher altitude in the Hampshire, Vermont. So a little bit of a snow pocket around here and a cold pocket. So I, I don't see, I mean, yes, those areas have to continue to modernize. Uh, Blue Hills has not been doing that. It's not a state-of-the-art operation. That's why high school kids in Boston come to Ski Ward to race, not to Blue Hills, because Blue Hills will be closed and will be open. But Blue Hills is also pretty maritime. So the temperature is another 15 degrees higher there than it is here in Central Mass. We're far enough away from the ocean. So there's that. And then, then you have Neshoba Valley, which I don't see there's been a lot of modernization and investment going on there. I mean, I've skied there a lot. Great health. But yeah, you have to, you got to keep pushing the boundaries of the technology. I mean, and Ward is doing that. Don't say that I can't say something nice about Ski Ward because I, I was very impressed by that effort and, and I'm open-minded about that. So let's look at New England more broadly here, Sean. And as anyone knows, the landscape has been completely redefined by multi-mountain passes in New England over the past five to six years. There's a new entrant this year that is not getting a lot of run and it's called Uphill New England. And it grants you uphill access to a dozen New England ski areas and actually really good ones. If this was a downhill pass, this would be an amazing product. It's, it's places like Black Mountain of Maine and Bromley. And it's a really terrific roster. The truth is, this is something I think that the whole earn your turns mentality has traditionally been free. We've started to see lift passes required for certain uphill access. So what's your reaction to uphill New England and this notion of paying $215 for uphill access at a dozen ski areas? Ah, okay. So when that first came out, and I have spoken with Ed Warren, the really nice guy who, who's running this thing. It's his brainchild. I'm on an email group with a bunch of uh, uphill people around here in, in Central and Western Mass, like real fanatics. And the reaction was initially like mixed, 50-50. Because there, there was this old ethos with uphill that the whole thing is, oh, it's free. Well, well, it's really not free anymore, right? Because you have to pay nominal charges here and there and here and there. It makes sense to pay nominal or even slightly higher charges to compensate ski areas for the work that they put in that the uphillers use, right? Snowmaking, uh, safety, everything, grooming. 
Okay, so all that. Parking. So some people in the skinning community, we call all pillars skinners because we use skins put down on the bottom of our skis. Welcome it because this is a step toward legitimacy that recognizes the, the skinning community is an actual market of people who spend money on ski equipment. Skinners buy beers. Skinners' kids go in ski programs, right? And like places like Wachusett, right? Uh, now now uh, rent and sell uphill equipment. But it's not a profit center for them. It's not a revenue center. Even though Wachusett, probably along with, let's say, Bolton Valley, or, it's probably the biggest uphill community in New England because of its proximity to Boston and Worcester. So this, I see Ed's group, Uphill New England, is doing a lot to legitimize it and to promote safety. And for the ski area side who participate, it does take the administrative burden of uphillers signing waivers, takes that away. What I'm a little skeptical about is, A, the revenue part for the ski areas. I don't know how much money they're going to make off of it. And secondly, how many Skinners are really going to use those 12? I, I know a couple of crazy uphillers around here, crazy in a good way, who want to do like a uphill New England safari and ski all of them in a long weekend, you know, uphill all of them. Um, but I think if you added up what the costs, the individual costs for all those areas are, it's maybe a little cheaper or just about the same as the 215. So there's that, that's going against it. But I'm like 60, 40 for it. I, I just think it expands awareness, says we're a legitimate community, uh, that we're not all yahoos. Every place I uphill skin at, you know, I get a pass. I pay the nominal fee. At Stratton, it's free, but you have to still have to sign a, a waiver. But, you know, Berkshire East, it's 15 bucks. That's totally legitimate. But if you uphill a lot, and, uh, how many days does Uphill New England give you at each run? Is it... uh, it's, it's limited to three days at Bolton, but the rest is unlimited. Right. So that's a pretty good deal. I mean, if you ski like three or four around, so... I don't know. It's, it's caused a stir. They probably pitched every ski area in New England. Uh, what you said, I heard the grapevine is not going to go with them, but Waterville went with them, Saddleback, a number of other uh, good ski areas, as you pointed out. So that gives it some legitimacy. I'm mostly independent, I believe. Yeah, I, I have the roster right here. So it's Berkshire East, Saddleback, Black Mountain of Maine, Bromley, Dartmouth Skiway, Waterville Valley, three days at Bolton Valley, Mount Abram, Middlebury Snowball, Whaleback, Tenny, and Big Moose, also known as Big Squaw, up in Maine. Most of those have a vertical of at least a thousand feet, other than Big Moose, and offer some pretty nice terrain. So that's that's a to me is a great collection of independent mountains. No, it is. It's it's remarkable how fast they got that up and running. And I think uh, they've already expanded it now to include like if you are a member of the Granite Backcountry Alliance in New Hampshire. You can now use an app and their app run by Uphill New England will show uh, what gladed areas are open. Not, you know, not at lift serve mountains, but what areas that have been gladed. That's a big problem right now is finding all those conditions for backcountry skiers who don't go on lift serve areas. So that would be a huge plus to do that. So I don't know. I think that the Uphill ski community is pretty much welcome these guys in here, but see how it goes. So what I find funny, Sean, you mentioned that uphill access is still free at Stratton. It's also free at Sugarbush, Alter which Altera owns both of those ski areas. And I confirmed with Vale, uphill access is free at all seven of their New England ski areas, which includes some really good ones like Stowe and Wildcat. I mean, what a funny dynamic we found ourselves in where 12 independent ski areas have banded together to offer a $215 uphill pass. Meanwhile, the big corporate conglomerations that are responsible for so many changes in skiing still allow you to access it for free. I, I mean, how strange is that dynamic? And does that surprise you? 
Well, I will say this, though. There's a nuance to that. Altera is firmly pro-uphill. I mean, there are six designated uphill routes at Stratton. There's one at Mount Snow, and it's pretty perilous. Okay. It's not encouraged at Vail Resorts uh, ski areas in the Northeast. It's, at Stowe, it's only after lifts close, so you're skinning in the, in the nighttime. Um, or the morning, right? Yeah, or the early morning. I think most of the uphill really dedicated people in Stowe go right when the gondola closes up that designated route. So Okibo's got a couple of designated daytime routes. Mount Snow has one for a couple of years, had none. Then they relaxed it a little bit. They also relaxed their dog policy in summer. So Mount Snow, you have to go straight up Canyon. It's crowded. It's steep for uphill, if, it not, if not for downhill. Stratton gives you four to six really well-defined, roomy, designated areas. I, I think it's a point of differentiation for Altera versus Mouso. So even Mouso's free, it's not super welcoming to Skinner's the way that uh, Stratton and Sugarbush are. I tell you, I'm, I'm so, and I haven't looked into this deeply, mostly because I just don't care, but <laughs> if I, I'm surprised that Vale and Altera are not more sensitive to the liability here, because I imagine that that's what's behind these fees at the other ski areas is there needs to be some kind of cost attached to that risk so that they can point to the liability waivers, like you said, and say, okay, well, they agreed to this. I, I mean, how much of that is a factor? I, I feel like we're one broken leg away from Vail just removing uphill access altogether. I, I'm really surprised they even allow it. How much of a factor is liability here? Well, you do need to sign a liability waiver at, at Vail Resort areas to do it. So it's, but it's, there's no cost attached to it. So you do have that. Same as Stratton. So um, I think almost every ski area, there's some form of liability wa waiver, whether you pay uh, a fee or not. Fail is a public company. And I know from the inside out, they are pathologically afraid of li liability. Uh, they are insanely aware of liability. And I know when my when my late brother was marketing director at Vail, he said it was just a, a nightmare. I mean, you had people going off catwalks and tumbling to their deaths. And, and then you have shareholders. Don't want to have be paid out, <laughs> paying out large sums. And, you, and the securities are not completely immune from liability, right? They are protected, but they have to sometimes pay. And so to some extent, Altera is not a, a public company. So maybe there's a little less fear of, of that liability. and But also, there's two scariest in Vermont have a ton of acreage. A lot of it has to do with the sidelines and rights of way going up so you can be visible. But the safety issue is a real one. And it's known in the skinning community that Mount Vail Resorts is quite a bit more restrictive than Altera. And I think Altera does it to cultivate that more of that image of openness, but maybe also because they're a privately owned uh, company. So if someone wants to check out the Uphill New England Pass and they want to start being an uphill person and, and maybe this having this formal structure around it will make them feel more welcome in it. What are the important etiquette pieces here? Like, what do you do to not be an a-hole as an uphiller? Oh, you follow the mountain's rules. You stay, usually it's it's either skiers left or skiers right. You stay hugging the trees. You go on the designated routes up and down. You wear brightly co colored clothing so you're visible. That's it, you know, just follow their designated routes. Don't be, you know, climbing, even if it's five in the morning, like at what shoes that we have this, you can't be climbing up the middle of the, of the trail because you could have a snowmobile coming down or you could have a winch cat and somebody could get beheaded. It's very serious business out there in the morning with these huge machines running around. It, it's scary. And the scariest, to their point of view, they are really afraid of hurting somebody, you know? 
And most Skinners are like thoughtful and knowledgeable, and but some are Yahoos. And so just stick to skiers left. And as far as the, <laughs> there's this other etiquette thing, which is, you know, you're showing up the corduroy. There's no way around that. It's like we get the first corduroy. That's the way it is. <laughs> and a lot of the skiers hate that. And I, I think Jeff Crowley doesn't like that we do that either. <laughs> the East is so funny. <laughs> like in the West, I don't think anyone cares about corduroy. Um, what, what about when you're passing somebody uphill or if someone's passing you, should you just let them yeah, you, it and, and not block right. the path. yeah, you step to the right or to the left wherever there's more room and they give you a signal and you and you you just step aside and let them pass. Yeah. All right. I will wave to all you guys from the lift. I think that sounds like a, a lot of fun. No, people do do that. <laughs> yes. All right. So mega passes are the future. They're not going anywhere. It's no surprise that there was this inevitable end at an uphill pass. If you compare the current landscape to what it was even six, seven years ago, I mean, you have the Icon Pass has seven ski areas in New England. Epic has another seven. Indy now has 16 on their full tier and five more on their allied tier. But there's a lot of ski areas in New England. There's about 100 by my count. And even without overlap, there's still room for a lot of competitors. We saw the No Boundaries Pass step onto the scene. And last year it had three partners, actually four partners. It had Whaleback, Dart Muskiway, Tenny, and Mount Abram. This year it added Granite Gorge. And then Indy Pass said, no, you can't have Whaleback and Dartmouth. They can't be part of other rev revenue generated passes. They're part of Indy Pass. So no boundaries passes back to Tenny, Granite Gorge, and Mount Abram. Uh, it's an interesting product, $99 for, for between one and three days at each of those. If we're accepting this idea Sean, this limitation that we're living in a world where you can't really have pass overlap, you know, set aside Mountain Collective and Icon in their weird relationship for a moment. Do you think there's a growth path for no boundaries? Is there, are there 10 ski areas in New England that could be on this pass? Well, I don't know much about that, that fight between these two guys, but I'm going to say no. I don't think there's a lot because of the current configuration says it all. I mean, you have Whaleback, Dartmouth, and Tenny. Those are niche skiers. They're even niche within the indie universe. Not to diminish them at all. And I, the only one I've skied out of those three is Dartmouth Skiway, which is a charming, wonderful place, which is heavily dominated by ski racing, by the way. I know when he interviewed the GM, he acknowledged that. But no, with Altera and, and Indy's footprint, like New England being the biggest region for Indy, I don't see the freedom is going to make a huge inroads here. Well, let's let's talk then about the main free agency we have left and where they could end up. I think the big obvious ones are Matt River Glen, Smuggler's Notch, Bretton Woods. I mean, I could see... Smuggler's Notch, frankly, being on any pass. Same with Bretton Woods. I mean, Indy Icon or Epic. I think Matt River Glen, obviously, is only a partner for Indy, although they're right next to Sugarbush and you could make a marketing play. They do have a joint college pass where you could make a play for you know some kind of bonus day structure at Mad River Glen. I, I think that probably would never happen. But of those three, where do you see those three ending up? Which which pass would be a good fit for them? Oh, well, Smugs is its own huge conversation, right? I mean, they've been super proudly independent until they weren't this summer when they proposed an unholy alliance with Stoke, which, which is what that gondola would have actually represented uh, or reciprocal or whatever. 
in the back of my mind, I mean, I don't see how Dale Resorts doesn't go after that, you know, in the long run. I mean, there's other ways you could link Smugs and Stove besides a gondola. You could just link it by land. But Smugs hasn't joined a pass up to now, so I don't know why they would. Maybe they do need a few more numbers of people. Um, Brenton Woods, they have such high visitation. Not sure if they need it. And then Mad River is the iconoclast to end all iconoclasts. So they probably see that as some sort of corporate conspiracy to join a, a, a pass. Yeah, I'm not sure if any of the ski areas necessarily need it, right? I think Jay Peak was probably fine on its own, especially now. I guess maybe it needed a little help when the Canadian border was closed. But now it seems like it would be fine without it. I think what they end up liking is this steady paycheck that comes from passive marketing, right? Because to take an example from the West, if you're Jackson Hole and you're a member of the Icon Pass and the Mountain Collective, well, they're doing all that marketing and you're just collecting their check every year. And as long as you protect your product through reservation requirements and leaving the Icon Base Pass and some other things, it still ends up being attractive. And I would argue actually that as much as the mega passes are hated in Jackson Hole, they are the reason why Jackson Hole was able to stay independent because now they don't have to worry about having the resource access to resources of a larger company because they do have access to Icon Pass resources. So I, I guess what I'm saying is, no, they don't necessarily need to, but it doesn't mean that it wouldn't be attractive to them to have that passive income. Yeah, especially for smugglers. They do have a kind of an access challenge that, that- Smugglers just to get there. But I don't, things are, at Smugglers, I mean, the future is uh, uncertain there. So maybe that this would help. But maybe there's also a niche for scariest that are proudly outside of any past. Because that, that makes them independence within an independent universe. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I think you're right. And someone will leave these passes eventually, and they'll figure out a way to do it without it and make and to make that a differentiator. For now, we seem to be in the growth era. Let's focus on smugs here for a minute, Sean, and the gondola connection. So essentially this would have been, for folks who aren't familiar, Stowe and Smuggler's Notch back up to each other and Sterling Peak at Smuggler's Notch, which is known as the intermediate peak, backs up to um help me out here. What's the uh, peak at, yeah, Spruce at, at Stowe and a short gondola, about two thousand foot gondola. Could connect them. And in fact, you can ski between them right now. You can skim between them or you can walk between them. It's a little bit dicey, but not in a truly wilderness dangerous way. So it would have connected them with a gondola. No word on how they would have been connected or if they would have been connected by a pass. You would have to imagine that would be part of it because otherwise buying a pass to both would be prohibitive for almost everybody. So just in general, what are your thoughts on this notion of connecting smugs and stow with a gondola which, which is temporarily on hold but smugs is going to continue to push for it oh i was absolutely thrilled when i heard about this because i did that a lot in my youth with my brothers because we, we skied at stow and i've made that crossing a number of times just walking across the frozen lake and you know walking about half a mile i guess take our skis off and spend the whole day at smugs and they honored the the stow lift tickets and vice versa pretty simple no complicated arrangement was not a revenue thing. It was just a, uh, an amenity for both mountains. And I don't know how they handle that now. But I will note that the definitive word has not yet been made on this proposal by Bill Stritzler, the owner of Smuggler's Notch. He temporarily withdrew his proposal with prejudice, alleging that the Vermont Forest Parks and Recreation, in his view, neglected the recreation part of their mandate in considering his proposal. 
in, in initially considering his proposal. And if you read the remarks of the, the commissioner, I mean, it wasn't definitive. There's time to build a consensus. I wouldn't count it out completely. I thought it was brilliant. It has some echoes of the Little Cottonwood Canyon controversy in, in Utah on the environmental side of it, disturbing the natural beauty of something. I don't know. I just think the thrill of being able to access both of those mountains through each other and being so close to each other is so compelling that I, I just wish I wish it could happen somehow. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, I feel like we're in an era of environmental overkill where any development is seen as bad. But in truth, sometimes low impact, small developments can have very, very high impacts as far as what they're able to do to move people around. And right now to get between smugs and snow in the winter is a 45 minute drive around the mountains. And you could just connect them directly with a lift that moves over the forest floor and very little construction disturbance. What do we have to do to to make a better case that sometimes if you sacrifice a little, you'll get a lot rather than I think there's a really reflexive opposition to any sort of building in the wilderness. And, And I'm not saying we should go in and clear cut and build housing develops all these things. But I think that there's a way to to do surgical changes to the mountain landscape that overall improves the environment. Yes, I totally agree. And there's also an economic argument. I mean, Vermont, despite its people who have moved there and the tourist town, it's not, a, it's not a very wealthy state, right? There's not a lot of employment outside of the tourist areas, right? And so this would improve the economic infrastructure of that part of Vermont. So there's that. And then there's, I like to make the analogy with like wind turbines, say around Cape Cod, you give up an uninterrupted view toward the horizon by something that delivers great value to the community. And you interrupt that view only slightly. And maybe a bird crashes into it every once in a while. So I see the, the little Cottonwood Canyon gondola, that's a big economic driver even more than the, the stove smug one. But progress is, is hard and you have to make little compromises here and there and things don't stay the same forever. And Bill Stritzler is going out of his way to make the least environmentally impact and donating more land that he's taking. Um, but, but that said, from the Act 250 is a very strong piece of environmental legislation. It's a good piece of legislation. Molly over at Ski Vermont spends a lot of time lobbying within the parameters of that uh, law to enable Vermont skiers to, to make expansions and improvements and snowmaking ponds and stuff like that. And it should have strict environmental review. But you have to weigh, you know, all the factors. And Vermont should weigh the recreation just as much as the forest and the, and the environment. Setting aside those concerns for a moment, if you stow and smuggler's notch are very different, they, they ski very different and they feel very different and they tend to attract a somewhat different demographic. Do you have concerns that a lift connection between the two ski areas would compromise the character of smuggler's notch in particular? No, I don't because not enough stow people. I mean, you have phenomenal terrain already at stow. Smugs has equally phenomenal terrain of a slightly different kind in places. Although you could say that Goat and Star are pretty similar to some of the stuff that smugs. I don't see it in a huge uh, inundation of stow people. I mean, you have to, first of all, you have to schlep all the way over to Spruce. Then you have to get up to the top of Big Spruce. I mean, most hardcore stow skiers are fixated on, uh, on Mansfield. And Spruce, even on a super busy day, it's stow is not crowded. 
So that tells you something. It still is focused on Mansfield, not on Spruce. So in that direction, no. And I don't see a ton of huge amounts of Smugs people going over the other way because they pick Smugs for a reason. I see some doing it just for the fun of it, but that's just the way I see it. So I, I wonder then by that logic, then why would you even build it, right? Because if most people are fixated on their ski area, because Stritzler's argument for this was, okay, this is going to help smugs evolve into a different sort of destination. But if you don't see people taking advantage of it, maybe it's just a really expensive trophy to have, but but doesn't do anything practical. Yeah. He must have a good idea of the numbers that would make it viable. So yeah. Yes. I guess you would have, you would have enough numbers that just don't fundamentally change the character of either. Has it at the other areas you've written about and talked about that have these linking lifts? Probably not. So the cynical interpretation of this project and the immediate reflexive interpretation of the social media sphere was, oh, Smugs is selling to Vail. Stritzler promised to me that there had been no talks of selling to Vail. I tend to pay, take people at their word and perhaps I'm naive. Do you buy it? Do you think that that this is happening in a, in a vacuum with Smugs staying independent and Vail keeping ownership of Stowe and that's it? Uh, I just... I don't know how much appetite Vail has to expand further in New England because I think you've noted too in the, the looking at Europe now, but it just seems eminently logical for them to look at Smuggler's Notch being right next to Stowe and they can make other connections, if not a gondola, to be able to access that terrain, make it easier. That would be less, uh, have less of an impact. On the other hand, Vail probably doesn't want to upgrade all, you know, a ton of lifts, but they could put down a couple. Vale has owned Crested Butte. It hasn't destroyed the character of Crested Butte. So maybe they could run Smuggler's Notch and not and, and keep some of the character. Vale hasn't destroyed the character of Crotchet, not in New Hampshire. It's exactly the same as it was before Vale took over. Yeah, S- same with Kirkwood. I, I, I find the the narrative of Vale McDonald's defying its resorts to be kind of ignorant. I, it just isn't isn't what's happening. Um, so in some ways, Sean, the Smugs gondola is a solution in search of a problem. The Little Cottonwood Canyon gondola, however, is a clear solution to one of the biggest problems in skiing, which is th- this immense traffic buildup in Little Cottonwood Canyon on any peak day or powder day. The opposition, however, is 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 fierce and it's entrenched and it was immediate. And there is a very, very loud contingent of people that want nothing to do with a gondola, even if that would keep them from sitting in a car for three hours in Little Cottonwood Canyon on a powder day. Are you surprised by the level of resistance that we're seeing in Utah? Uh, Not really. I talked about it with some people when I was out there. As much as outdoor recreation people are pro-environment, they're probably more so fiercely independently. They want to be able to access it the way they want to, when they want to, that freedom aspect. And so then they dig up all these environmental arguments why it's bad and they have to stretch. Now, I've read some arguments where they say that, oh, well, the area near the gondola base is going to be clogged with traffic, which I think is okay. It's a city. You know, you can be clogged with traffic in a city. But that's how I see it. It's like the, the Skinners and the Mountaineers and the people want to get to the access points at the trailheads where they want to go, not just get stuck on a gondola. But it's so simple. Taking a third of the vehicles off of that road, making it so much safer and cleaner. It's crazy. One other thing, I mean, they haven't proposed, but the way to really reduce automobile traffic is to reduce the, the roadway capacity. 
the state could do that too. But I don't know. I think you and I both, I mean, we come at it from like a resort skier perspective. Boom, it gets us right up there. No problem. It's the best thing ever. And we're not going to be sliding off the road, even with chains and all-wheel drive. Uh, we're not going to be setting for three hours. It's phenomenal. But if, if you're a really elite uphill person and you want to go right to the spot you want to go to and you take the gondola, how are you going to get there? My understanding is the gondola doesn't replace vehicles. It simply gives you another way up the canyon. If you still want to go be the Skinner superhero, you can do that. Yes. But would there be a penalty for like tolls or costs or? Yeah. Yeah. It, th- there could be. And, and I think there's a cost to everything, right? Like who says you have an unalienable right to drive to the top of Little Cottonwood Canyon and ski wherever you want? I mean, maybe you did 60 years ago. I mean, today, the real environmental travesty in Little Cottonwood Canyon is that road. You would never build a road into that sensitive environmental area right. <laughs> these days. But but the the road has become this symbol for those who claim they want to protect the environment. It's, it's a very bizarre dynamic. Yeah, it really is. It's in to me the, the look of technology in nature, just like high tech wind turbines. I think it looks pretty cool. It kind of adds a new component of where the world is today. So living in complement, in harmony with nature, and not intruding necessarily intruding on it. And think about all the pe- more people who will be in nature to experience it in the gondola. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, let's uh, let's come back out east here. There's a bunch of new lifts going into New England this winter, Sean. I, gosh, I don't know which one's more hated, the Aditash Triple or the Barker lift at Sunday <laughs> River, but both of those are coming out and we're getting brand new lifts. Talk about each of those and how excited you are for those new machines. Super excited about the Aditash Mountaineer. I mean, I've been asking various owners of that ski area for two decades, are you going to build a new one? And usually the answer was no. Or when are you going to build one? We don't know. And when Vail started being slightly open about it, it was a great sign. I would argue, having ridden both of those lifts a lot, that the Aditash triple was even worse than Barker because it was a small old triple that squeezed people together and it swung more side to side and it had deeper drops and it was less reliable. They're equally cold. Both of them. Equally cold and windy and the tremendous improvement in both of them. The big controversy at Aditash is, oh, well, can that summit handle the capacity? Because it's, there's not a hell of a lot of trails coming off the summit. There's like two main pods, three main pods, and each with like two trails off of it. But I think it can handle the capacity because you have to be a kind of a special kind of skier to go up at the top of pretty much to the top of Aditash and want to ski that a, a lot. They're also not building that chair to full capacity. I hosted Brandon Schwartz, the general manager of Aditash, on the podcast recently, and they're they're configuring it for 2,100 skiers an hour, not the 2,400 per hour that a high-speed quad can, in theory, handle. Right. And Brandon told me that that capacity is roughly equal to when they had that near-summit double that closed in 2018. So between the old near-summit double, which he only couldn't access Humphrey's Ledge and Wolford's Gom but you could access the other five or six trails. They had roughly the same capacity. But if you've skied up at top of Aditash, I mean, it's not like, there's not throngs of people waiting online to go to the top. There might be a lot more now, but it's going to be great. I mean, you're going to be able to get over to Bear Peak maybe a little faster as well. And it just, to me, just brings Aditash back into the discussion of a real vibrant skier that kind of was teetering for a few years, you know? And I could have seen that shutting down. 
So let's let's zoom out and look at Vale as a whole in New England here, Sean. When Vale really came in in force in 2017, 18, and 19 into New England, there was this very stupid narrative that took hold for with basically no evidence that said Vale only cares about its western ski areas and it's just going to use its eastern ski areas to recruit for the west. Now, fast forward to 2023, and Vale has put in three new six-packs in the past three years, one at Okemo, one at Stowe, one at Mount Snow. It's put in new high-speed quads at Atitash and Mount Snow. It moved another high-speed quad at Okemo in a very smart way. I think we can finally retire this stupid narrative that Vale doesn't care about New England, which never had any merit to begin with. What do you think? Oh, yeah, totally. And I don't think they're done. I think the Wildcat constituencies agitating pretty hard for something new to the summit there. They could easily handle a six pack, no problem. One that's, you know, maybe a D line, maybe one that's a little more wind resistant. But I think the argument in, in New England still is that, well, the Vale brings in managers that are not local, don't know the old New England ways. And there's some merit to that. And also maybe the marketing is a little homogenized. You know, across the websites, I, I don't see why skiers should care that much about that. On the other hand, I did notice that Vail this summer made a much bigger effort at last two summers of being transparent about their lift projects, updates about it, video updates, stuff like that. Um, I am worrying. I should note, I, I do worry about Adatash, the new Mountaineer uh, high-speed quad, opening in time for Christmas this this year. So still not, not totally reassured that that's going to happen. Might be a little bit. I mean, if you see over at Berkshire East, the, the high-speed quad has gone up there like so fast. And that's because you have a culture there of getting things done fast. And you have the mountain is super integrally involved in the construction. So, no, I don't think, I mean, Vail had a big problem with the parking at uh, Sunapee. That was a black mark. I think that's under control this year. The other black mark was sh- uh, shutting Crotchet down during the week for three or four days. That's gone now. So, and then there was the argument that Adatash and Wildcat were the, you know, unwanted stepchildren of the peak deal, right? They don't really fit the urban strategy. They were thrown in there. They had years and years of deferred maintenance. In other words, they were left to rot by peak. Um, <laughs> so there's that. But then uh, to counterbalance that is Vail has yet, have, has yet to sell the ski area and they're proud of that. So I think they're taking the path of least resistance and say, well, we got to improve these properties that we have up there. So it sounds like what you're saying is there was a learning curve. Because look, I'm not making the argument that Vail's done everything right in New England. I, I think they still do some really weird things. I think putting New Hampshire on that, New Hampshire scary is on the cheapest Epic Day Pass is, is, is sort of just even from a perception point of view, a bad look when you lump them in with Ohio. It sort of suggests that you don't understand what they are. I think that the Thanksgiving blackouts are completely unnecessary in the Northeast. I've never seen anything remotely resembling a lift line in the Northeast on Thanksgiving weekend outside of Killington and its World Cup fiasco. But I think they're getting better. I think they had a they digested a lot at once and then COVID hit and they had some problems with labor shortages and other things. But is that fair? Do you, do you think they're coming around and, and really getting New England now? I do. I mean, they they brought two GMs with New England roots to run Adatash and, and Wildcat and some with some expectation of stability. They'll be here for a while. So that was a big thing. Crotchet, East Coast, new GM in Mount Snow, East Coast roots. So they're kind of getting that a little bit. And yeah, they're settling in. You know, they're uh, learning how to operate. I mean, Stowe has been, Stowe has a new GM as well. 
I don't know if she's, I don't think she's East Coast roots, but, you know, sometimes Vail's management structure and philosophy of moving people around and giving them tremendous career opportunities and growth and synergies within the, you know, huge national ecosystem, sometimes that works against local needs and local desires. Vail has that philosophy and they're going to stick with it. It works for them. But sometimes it butts up against, you know, New England is kind of stodgy. They want things the way they were. And the people who, who knew, you know, the head of the snowmaking department since they were little kids. That's kind of how I see it. But I think they're kind of waking up. Bill has woken up to say, yeah, we can't, we doing this kind of a special case. And you have to treat it a little more uh, tenderly. So a company that I feel like does get New England is Boeing and they have done an enormous amount of work on their New England resorts over the past few years, putting in eight packs at Loon and Sunday River, putting in an expansion this year at Loon over on South Peak and another expansion up at Sugarloaf. I mean, how impressed are you with Boyne, Sean, and how rapidly they are modernizing their, well, they're not really doing anything at Pleasant yet that we can that we can see at least headliner wise, although I know that they have some stuff planned, but just looking at their three legacy resorts that they've had some time to digest and work on, what's your thinking on Boyne and the way that they are just so rapidly modernizing and aggressively modernizing their New England ski areas? It's just staggering. It's incredible. I mean, Loon is a totally different ski area than it was 10 years ago. Sunday River, it's just, it just seems limitless, the amount of stuff they're going to do to improve a place that was already great. The unwanted stepchild in this whole equation has been Sugarloaf. And and if you ski up there, and I skied there in college, and I love to ski there, and the locals grumble about it. Even the born employees will say, ah, oh, Sunny River gets everything. Moon gets everything. <laughs> and it was true. It right. was true. That's changing now. You have the, uh, tip, what's it, Timber Creek? Uh, what's the name of the new? Um, Rip, Ripsaw. It's Ripsaw. on West Mountain. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I've skied some of that terrain over there. It's actually lovely terrain. And so, so Sugarloaf has, has really suffered from a lack of beds more than anything else and, and some creaky lifts. And so once you start building up the infrastructure at Sugarloaf, the vi visitation infrastructure, then you can start modernizing the lift infrastructure. And I think that's how Boyne is looking at it. But uh, what they've done out here and with Big Sky is just amazing. I mean, I don't, I don't know how they can do it. Uh, the capital ones. Yeah, I, I couldn't pick my jaw up off the floor at Big Sky last year. I mean, just standing there in the base and seeing those D-line lifts moving out of there. I mean, to your point about Sugarloaf, so Sunday River is opening its second D-line bubble lift in two years. So they opened the Jordan 8 last year. Beautiful lift. I'm not sure if you had a chance to ride it. Then they're opening up the the Barker lift, which, as you said, both both the uh, Attached Summit lift and Barker are cold. But this one at Sunday River is coming, the Barker lift is coming with heated seats and a bubble. So Boyne is really going all out on that. Meanwhile, the new lift up at Sugarloaf, that West Mountain lift, Ripsaw, is a used, I say that in air quotes, lift. It's the old Swift Current quad from Big Sky. Now, when I talked to Brian Norton, the GM at Loon about this last year, because they did the same thing at Loon, they took the old Kank high-speed quad, they moved it next door to Seven Brothers. And he said, look, it's a new lift. We rebuilt everything. Yes, we're using the towers and carriers, but otherwise you're not even going to recognize it. I think that you can say that. And even if sugar loafers understand that, as you said, they're still griping and saying, okay, well, Sunday River's getting two new D lines in two years and we're getting a used lift. So at what point do you think that Boyne needs to 
to do something big up there to, to, to you know, maybe throw in an eight where Super Quad is. I mean, wh- what do you think that Sugarloaf needs to kind of take that next step and get that same treatment that Sunday River and Loon have gotten? Well, Super Quad was a Super Quad like 20 years ago. Now it's kind of a mm, uh, <laughs> not so great quad. <laughs> right. So they do need an eight there and they need a reliable summit lift as well. So they definitely need that. I think it's coming. Because they, they first need to get more condos and more places to put people, visitors, to Sugarloaf. And they do have to worry about Pleasant Mountain, which is a great place. I've skied there a lot over the years. Their number one need is a new base lodge. But that's short money compared to a, a high-speed lift. Right. At Pleasant, they need a base lodge? Oh, yeah. It's tiny. It's tiny even even with the old ownership. So with, with Sugarloaf getting the new expansion, you also have a new expansion at Loon. It's a small expansion, but it's super important because it's going to give Loon some badly needed beginner train and it's going to connect those giant parking lots with a lift to the rest of the resort. How big of an impact do you think this Loon expansion is going to have, even though in the scale of the resort itself, it's not that big of a chunk of terrain. It's only about 30 acres. Well, as you say, it is a big deal because symbolically you can now do something you've never been able to do before, and that is go to Loon from the town of Lincoln itself, so close to where people stay and live. And it also gives them substantially more beginner terrain because Loon does not have a ton of beginner terrain. So that's a big deal. And there's room for more. It it just makes a lot, it takes the pressure off the parking system quite a bit, I think. You can just park there in the escape hatch and quickly get anywhere around the mountain. So it's a little addition that makes a major impact. Stepping back and looking at this as a whole, we just went through a bunch of new lifts that Vale put into New England and a bunch of new lifts that Boyne has put into New England. I think for a while, New England was quite a ways behind the West from a lift infrastructure point of view. As you gauge this, Sean, and these improvements we've seen from these big companies over the last few years, do you think New England's catching up? I really do. I mean, I remember complaining in my ski column a decade ago that I, it was almost like a stock phrase. New England's got a badly outdated lift infrastructure or aging lift infrastructure. Those were the days when there was only, you know, um, the AIG had bought Stowe and put in the new gondola there. And that was about it. There wasn't much else going on in terms of new lifts. You know, it was a couple here and there. Everything was creaky, reliable. And yeah, if you look at it, it's 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 Maine, it's New Hampshire, it's Vermont, it's even Massachusetts, which is now getting its third ski area with a high-speed lift after Germany and Massachusetts. So, you know, next would be Connecticut to get a high-speed lift. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely modernized. There's a lot going on. And, and you know, you have the K1 Lodge at, at Killington. You have this massive, beautiful base development at Spruce, at Stowe. Uh, there's a lot even going on with the base infrastructure, which I think is important because that's our culture here. You don't have a, a, a base lodge culture in the, in the West as much. Not nearly as much, right? With a few exceptions here and there. Snow Basin, a few other places. I remember when my brother was telling me about this new plan for the huge complex being built at Crystal. I don't know if it's open for this year, Crystal Mountain. And they were calling it something like a multimodal, you know, community engagement center. I go, Adam, that's a that's a base lodge. <laughs> um, you know, you're building a base lodge. I don't care what you're calling it. <laughs> <laughs> What what's driving these investments, Sean? Is this in fact the spoils of the Megapass system that people have so many ambivalent thoughts about? Because on the one hand, 
it's great. You can scale over. On the other hand, everyone has one and it tends to focus skier visits on small areas. But I mean, the truth is pretty much every ski area around the continent that's participating in these passes is making substantial, sustained, expensive upgrades to their lifts and snowmaking and infrastructure. Well, it's almost in like, in like that book, uh, Skiing Inc. Yeah. All right. We're in the age of corporate ski area ownership. And what do corporations like to do? They like to invest and expand. And so I know this goes against a lot of my readers and New England people, but I, I think it's good. It's, it democratizes the sport more. More people can get into it. It's not as expensive as it used to be. In fact, the critics are saying it's too cheap. <laughs> um, you know, So it's just more... It puts it in a more solid footing for the future and recognizes that skiing is an outdoor sport that drives the economy like no other outdoor sport, too. And it's just a mass participation sport. And it's the way that capital was marshaled and deployed in a way it never has been in the ski business. So when it comes to lift overhauls, the independent ski areas are getting up in on it too. And, and I don't think you need a new lift and I don't think you need high speed lifts. I do think you need reliable lifts. We are finally almost about to hopefully after several, several years, see the black quad go up at magic. That is the old snowball fixed grip quad from Stratton that's been sitting in the parking lot for about four years in various states of assembly. Looks like the chairs are hanging and that thing is finally up. How big of a deal will be that be to magic mountain? Oh my God, that is almost like the impact of the Industrial Revolution, <laughs> American history. <laughs> that is, there is so much pent up demand for that. It is crazy. And I did worry about Jeff Hathaway's psychological health over the last four years. No, sorry, Jeff, just kidding. Um, but he has borne it with stoic uh, perseverance, you know? Yeah. He's like pushed ahead, pushed ahead every obstacle thrown their way, everything that could go wrong went wrong. Now it looks like it's about to happen. And I know with magic, something still could happen, uh, but <laughs> it's, it's just going to be revolutionary and it's not going to be overloading the mountain. It, and it's, it's just a slow fixed four place lift. And yet it proves that to me that the, the best lift is the one that suits its particular circumstances. And that's what this does. How much is this going to act as a stabilizing mechanism for a ski area that, frankly, has to compete directly with Stratton right next door, which has all kinds of high-speed lifts and a gondola and Mount Snow right down the road, which also is covered with high-speed lifts and a lot of terrain? A lot. Huge difference. It's the real thing they need to, to kick their revenue up to the next level. And they'll be able to handle the capacity as well. It's going to change everything. And yet, it's not going to overload. I mean, it's not like magic stowing up a, you know, a covered APAC up <laughs> Moving north a little bit, there was a little debate around whether Canon would get a new tram or if a gondola was a better machine there. They will get a new tram. The money, I believe, has been apportioned from the state legislature. Uh, that will probably be built starting next year. So the this may be the last winter to ride the old tram. I believe it will be out of commission for a winter as we do construction. What are your thoughts on getting a new tram at Canon? Well, I did like the idea of the gondola when I first heard about it, but... I could see why the legislature and the people wanted a tram because of its iconic imagery and its history and its culture. So I'm, I'm down with it. You know, I don't mind standing in a smelly box with packed in with people for eight minutes of sweating and waiting. And, you know, I think Gondola would have been easier and faster and cheaper, but I get it. 
And that thing is awesome. And it'd be great to have one that isn't going to fall down mm-hmm. the next winter. <laughs> All right. So back to your home state here. You mentioned that the third scary on Massachusetts was about to get a high-speed lift. That would be Berkshire East. They're actually putting that right next to a carpet-loaded Summit Quad that they installed not that long ago, within the past 15 years. Thoughts on Berkshire East getting a new high-speed lift? Now, we're, what they're going to do is take that triple that now runs parallel to the to the carpet-loaded Summit lift, and they're going to move that over into an expansion soon. So so what do you think? That's a lot of seats coming out of the same place, but you, know, you can get to most of it from the Summit, most of the mountain from the Summit. So what's your reaction to Berkshire East getting its first new high-speed lift? Well, I was always surprised because I know they had intentionally put up a fixed-grip uh, Skytrack quad back about eight years ago or so. And that was a big improvement. But I see the need for the high-speed quad because visitation at Berkshire East, I don't know the numbers, but it seems empirically, uh, anecdotally, that it's probably doubled since just before the COVID. It was starting to get busier even before the COVID because of the improvements that the Schaefer family had put in. Then COVID and Indy passed, I think, conspired to really dramatically boost the skier numbers there. So the quad, I know there's some worry in the race community because Mercury is such a race-oriented mountain, being that John Schaefer and his brother were both Division One race college racers, so on and so forth. Mountain owns the race team. That this will impinge on the training ground on, on upper and lower comp, but John has assured people it won't. And they have they certainly have enough terrain to accommodate it. So it's going to be amazing. It's just going to be amazing. Being able to lap that great terrain even faster is going to make it, give it even a more Vermont-like experience, I think. And we'll see. We'll see if it puts too much pressure on the base lodge, which which already can get pretty crowded. They might have to do some more expansion down there. So what about Wachusett? They have three high-speed lifts. They did an upgrade of one of them this summer, and then they're talking about a replacement for Polar Express, which was the first high-speeder to go in at the resort back in 1994 and probably has an enormous number of hours on it. So tell us about the upgrades this summer and then where you think they should and will go with Polar Express. Ah, okay. Putting me on the spot. All right. So upgrading this summer is pretty simple. They had a $1.5 million contract with uh, Doppelmeyer. It's under their lift modernization program, Doppelmeyer. They replaced electronic control units, the, a lot of moving parts, not sure of the haul rope. They totally redid the bottom and top shacks, you know, just replacing the guts of the, of the machine. So it's going to be a lot more reliable. It, it had be, become steadily more unreliable over the years, and that serves their race area in Wachusett as a big race league with 800 people in it. And kids train there. So it's going to be great. You won't be able to see a fancy new thing except for the improvements to the top and bottom shacks. But, you know, it's what you have to do at a ski area with a lift of that age and those miles. Wachusett is a seven day a week, up to 12 hour a day operation. So the more controversial thing is what's going to happen to the Polar Express Summit lift. And I spoke with Jeff Crowley about this time last year, and he said it could be a six, could be a, a four pack. They haven't decided yet, but you know, Stuart, how people, especially, and, and a lot of skiers, especially ones that are so involved with their communities, like like this one, like Wachusett, that the people who have skied there for years think they own the place. And in a sense, they do. It's their mountain because they their family history is intertwined with the history of this mountain, this ski area. And they've skied there so much. And so they think they have a say in it. And I think that 
the salmon is pretty divided. A lot of people think what you said is too crowded. A six pack is going to overload it. I think there's been some research that shows that the density is spread out enough already. I, as a skier, I would love to not wait on a 20 minute lift line in the singles line uh, on weekend morning. And I think it'll do that. I mean, there's even lines on the singles lines on weekday mornings now because of maybe because of the work from home syndrome. We've never used to be. So I, I think it'll make it a lot better experience uh, in terms of waiting for the lift in the morning. And they can stagger the speed of the lift and whatever to, to lessen density. But I think people who run Wachusa, the Crowley family, have yet to make a decision. And they know what, if they go with a six, it's going to cause some uproar. I know that scary is a little tight as it is. Is there room to cut more trails to spread people out more off of Polar Express? Well, not really. No, not so much. You know, there was a, an expansion. I covered it as a newspaper reporter. There was a, a big expansion proposed in the early 2000s. And we went to the state Supreme Judicial Court and the environmentalists led by the Sierra Group, group blocked it. And um, it, it led uh, the argument that it, w- it was that it would have cut down some old growth uh, trees dating to the colonial era. But nobody had ever discovered those trees until they proposed the expansion. But whatever. The No, there's not a lot of room left. I mean, if you've been there, you see there's not much uh, wood separating the, the trails. So I don't know. I mean, I think it just depends on the engineering numbers that they come out with. The six-pack might be a little overkill on weekday days when they won't need it. But, you know, you go there weekday nights, there's a long lift line there till 7, 8 o'clock. So I think especially at night, it would really relieve that. I'm kind of biased toward more technology and more product progress in the ski industry. I would love to see it. And my theory is that, well, Jeff Crowley, the president and CEO of Wachusett, is a, he's a lift guy. You know, he worked for Doppelmeyer years ago, loves lifts. And so who wouldn't want, want to put up a, a sex pack? It's a more efficient way of moving people. All right. We'll be interesting to see what happens there. If people want to escape the crowds, they can keep going north. And I know you're a big Quebec guy and you mentioned earlier that you're going to try to get up there this winter. The way I always think about this is that Quebec is like another New England stacked on top of New England that none of us ever think about. Talk to us a little bit about Quebec and why it's worth taking a ski adventure up there and what you'll find if you do. Well, it's kind of like going to France without the bad attitude. Uh, (laughs) I would say the number one reason for me is north of the St. Lawrence River. That's just north of Quebec City and even farther up. I mean, you have 250 inches of annual snowfall. It's okay. So that's the number one reason. That's J-Peak numbers right there. So it's fabulous. And also in Le Massif and Mont Saint-Anne, you have two two skiers as good as anything in, in Vermont, New Hampshire. And you get this old world charm. And right now you get a 30% discount because of the exchange rate. So there's that. I mean, people who say the township ski area is, you know, closer to the Vermont border, eh, it's like a mini Vermont, people say. Right. So you ski those for novelty. It's fun. Maybe they're a little less crowded. Then the Laurentians, the drawback there, Mount Tavon's great ski area, you know, low base elevation, rains a lot, can be crowded. But Quebec has the most ski areas of any state or province in North America. So it is a ski-obsessed region. That ski culture, it's like going to Europe. You know, everybody skis. The very old grandmother is a great skier, and the little four-year-old is a great skier. And everybody skis and or goes cross-country. 
uh, or Telemark. And so, so there's really only two destination resorts in Eastern Canada, and that's Tremblant and Le Massif de Charlevoix, because there's another Le Massif on the south bank of the, of the St. Lawrence, and it's called Le Massif du Sud. So those two destination resorts have completely different characters, so they don't really compete with each other. You know, one is urban adjacent, that's Tremblant, and one is a feeling of being in nature, and that's Le Massif. Le Massif has more vertical. But uh, people don't realize that. I think Tabah has more acreage, but I don't know. It's just fun to go up to Quebec. It, people are friendly and it's really not as crowded as, as Vermont tends to be on uh, weekends and during the week. And it's like going to Europe, but a lot easier. The other area that's seen a lot of growth up there for backcountry is the Chick Chocks out at the end of the Gaspé Peninsula. So that's become a huge national destination for uh, above treeline backcountry. And are you headed there this year? I would love to. I've never been there, and I would love to go this spring, yeah. Uh, and they do have very established snowcat skiing there, too. And there's a couple of small lip-served areas up there as well. But you don't you don't drive, you know, 14 hours for a small lip-served area. Uh, all right. Well, if folks listening want to read all about your adventures this winter and your thoughts on the ski industry, how do they do that? Tell them about your column, when it starts, where it runs, what you're going to be writing on this year. All right, so my column drops this coming Thursday for the first one. It always starts on Thanksgiving Day, and it runs through the end of March. Thoughts for this year's ski is, well, I want to do something on some of the great ski shops in New England, the iconic ski shops, and be a highly subjective list. Let's see, I'm starting out with talking about the new Attitash Summit Lift, the Mountaineer. I'm going to look at the Berkshire East Lift. I want to do a story on women in leadership in ski areas, and not just Vail, but there's a real story there. I, I'm trying to get an interview with the new Stratton president. I'm sure you are too. And they told us all the same thing. Well, he's first got out of the ski at Stratton before they let him talk to the media. <laughs> that's right. So I'm excited to see where that's going to go. New leadership at Stratton. There's a new Western Mass backcountry group that I uh, want to write about. Been around for a couple of years. The Western Mass Backcountry Alliance. It's been doing a lot of glading. I, I kind of want to look at, I was joking around like try, with some friends of mine, like, should I do a story on the best bathrooms at a ski areas in New England? I thought, nah, I'm, I'm still weighing whether to do that. Cause last year I did the best bars, ski bars. And I picked 20, which is ridiculous. I should have done 10. And I picked 20 and I still left some good ones out. So the best bathrooms, you know, that'd be a fun, kind of a fun one that might get some interesting reader reaction. Uh, I want to do a feature on a, uh, another podcaster. Um, mentioned the, the growth of ski podcasts, and this guy's Mike Powell of the Powell Movement. And, and I just want to talk about the different podcasts and how they've grown and how they each have their distinct personalities. Um, yours is the best, of course. And then I, I do a lot of profiles of local people who are doing amazing things in the ski business. Uh, a good friend of mine who I've written about before just got back from an Antarctica trip. I hear about that. And uh, just other cool people doing cool things. So, and then, and then of course, uh, you know, I just document my, my little travels and what I see in here when I'm out there. So Sean, you do this column, you've done it for almost two decades and it starts in November and it goes through March. And, and I think that's a traditional ski publishing schedule. I've really taken to publishing all year round and my readership doesn't really drop off. I, I know you're writing for a more general audience, writing for a paper, but have you made the pitch to them that there are things to talk about off season? Cause you know, you end up missing things like the black mountain story where you don't, where you could have written some great stories about it. And some of these other things that happened in the off season, do you have any desire to do it outside of that four month window or are you pretty happy with 
living in that niche? Well, I, I liked having the, the off season because I had a tennis column for 10 or 12 years. So I did that. I like to play tennis and hike in the summer. And so if anything, I would probably pitch a hiking column. But I love having, I like having you and a few others shoulder the workload during the summer. <laughs> uh, you know, I follow you and it's great to have you guys now, you and other people in online media who are doing the news in the off season. So it keep me up to date. And it's almost like a luxury that I can have an off season. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that works. So uh, thank you, Sean. As always, I will look forward to all of your columns this winter, as I always do. We'll look forward to making some turns with you. I greatly appreciate your time as always and, uh, and good luck. And I hope you have a, a great winter and blow right past 60. Thanks so much, Stuart. Same to you. Have a good winter. Sean, that was a lot of fun, as usual. Thank you so much for making this an annual thing. That means a lot to me, and I have tremendous respect for what you do to cover New England skiing. Thank you all very much for listening. East Coast, I've got two really good pods coming your way with the leaders of Berkshire East slash Catamount and also Whiteface. Lots of awesome stuff booked into 2024, including conversations with the leaders of Sunday River, Big Sky, Red Mountain, BC, Mount Bachelor, Sugar Bowl, Panorama, BC, and Arapahoe Basin, plus many, many more coming your way in the new year. To get new episodes the moment they're live, please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. New podcasts appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts seven days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm City Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.